0: In the beginning was the word. And the word was lonely. So it joined up with a couple of mates to make the first sentence. Not, admittedly, a very good sentence, but after a swift editing session and the addition of some punctuation, the short story form was born, culminating seven years ago with to the foundation of Liars League. So tonight we celebrate beginnings and endings and celebrations of beginnings, also known as birthdays. We have five fabulous stories for you. Each with a beginning and an ending and most of them lots of words sandwiched roughly in the middle. <laughs> Talking of middle. Ours will be after the first three stories, when we'll have an interval so that you can begin new drinks, and prepare for the infamous Liars League book quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if anything, is getting more and more infamous. And if last month is anything to go by, <laughs> may well be the end of me. And now peace. A moment's silence as you fiddle with your mobile phones, turning them off, because this is not the end, it is not even the beginning
1: <laughs>
0: of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Shall we proceed? Our first story tonight will be the rat pie Man by Stephanie Brown, We read by Tony Bell. Stephanie is a Londoner. She's taking forever to write a novel. Her only previous publications have been three tiny tales on tube flash. She's fortunate enough to have attended the class of the late, the wonderful, the long-to-be-remembered John Pepperbridge. Tony Bell is an Evening Standard Award nominee for A Man for All Seasons. He's performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company, Repower, playing Bottom, Feste, Autolycus, and Tranio. TV includes Coronation Street, Holby City, Midsummer's Murders, EastEnders, and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony.
2: The Rat Pie Man by Stephanie Brann. The Beginning The Rat pie man adjusts the brim of his hat and slips down Cecil Court, almost invisible. Darkness has fallen on outer London, but the lights in the centre are never extinguished. The theatre crowds have gone home. The homeless lay out their cardboard mattresses in doorways, pull up damp sleeping bags, turn restlessly on their stony beds. In the bowels of the earth, a few trains still rumble. Rodents squeak. It is Valentine's Eve. He has found a bunch of battered chrysanthemums accidentally left behind on the Victoria line by a drunken commuter returning too late to his girlfriend in Walthamstow. He presents the bouquet to the maiden with a flourish. She gravely accepts. The celestial environmental health officer is enraged. He would have brought her only the best. Lilies from Kew, roses from Regent's Park, but it's against park regulations to pick them. He brandishes his sword, signalling the start of another episode of their eternal struggle. The very beginning. No one's sure how it first began There is a theory that the celestial environmental health officer was generated by a big bang, possibly caused by a fusion of volatile cleaning products stored under some heavenly sink. You think there's no washing up in heaven? I'll tell you, even angels are partial to a nice cup of tea. Others say that the rat pie man came first that he crawled out of London's primeval slime in the days when the Stegosaurus wallowed near Chelsea Reach. This theory claims that the celestial EHO arrived later, just as light had to be created to combat dark. Who came first doesn't really matter. The fact is that the weary stars have been gazing down on their ancient struggle ever since London began. The Rat Pie Man snatches the suckling baby rats from their mother's nipples down in the seething caverns beneath Leicester Square Underground Station. Locally sourced, he likes to say. (laughs) You'll find him selling pies in all sorts of places, in unlit alleys off Whitechapel High Street or out in the open at Borough Market. He might be that gaunt figure in a trilby, half-hidden in the shadows, carrying a tray of scrumptious-smelling delicacies. Or he could have disguised himself as a suave proprietor of the deli, leaning over the counter in a smutty white coat. He's proud of his pies. He'd like to trumpet their contents to the world, perhaps by allowing the tails to hang out as a pinkish-dangling fringe but he's forced to disguise the contents because people are so unaccountably squeamish. They say his pies are delicious. Of course they are. Doesn't he stew his tender young ratlings in the dregs of real ale collected from glasses left outside Soho (laughs) pubs? But he knows that if he listed the contents, his customers would spurn them. He believes in using things up, making something tasty out of what's available, especially proteinaceous things like rats, cockroaches and pigeons. Londoners are always being seduced by foreign foods. Not content to get E. coli from good old-fashioned pies, so he's forced to give his reluctant blessing and assistance to many other types of takeaway. You want to know the main ingredient of your burger, or the origin of those little meaty scraps in your chow mein? Ask the rat pie man how he disposes of his surplus stock. That doner kebab, what exactly was it before it was fitted? Is anyone missing a tomcat? Did you know that tougher, more mature rats make excellent biltong? He gives his support to cut-price chicken shops, the kind whose patron saint is depicted as a neon-lit kernel from the deep south curry houses where just about anything can be swamped in an all-purpose spicy sauce, fish and chip shops where the fryer is filled with old and insufficiently heated fat. He likes the rich possibilities of randomness, the careless cockroaches that dive into the pizza dough, the accidentally deep-fried mice. Germs should be given a chance. (laughs) After a few pints on a Friday night, he gets all nostalgic about the good old days when cholera, was king just as the rat pie man prides himself on being sinister so his arch enemy the celestial environmental health officer the one who pursues him through time and space is righteousness personified once you know who he is you see him everywhere it is he who wields the sword of truth for the daily express His stern features are represented on the face of Richard the Lionheart statue outside the Houses of Parliament. He is the man who knows what's right. He favours the antiseptic. Formica counters that smell of Dettol. Plastic wrapped sandwiches made of flavourless sliced bread. Slivers of processed ham or cheese pressed between flaccid white thighs. Everything, he believes, should be vacuum packed. Then sterilised for extra safety. Refrigeration. Don't get him talking about refrigeration. He can tell you the optimum cooling temperature for every food. And once he gets started, he'll never stop. As the rat pie man often says, fondling a rodent in his pocket, they're squeaky clean, and there's just plain squeaky. You pays your money and you takes your choice. The celestial EHO and the Rat Pie Man are both in love with the maiden. The maiden has been here forever. We all know her. In London she appears in many forms. She is justice, looking stern on the roof of the old bailey. In feeling mode she manifests herself as one of the sinuous nymphs who mourn Sir Arthur Sullivan in the embankment gardens. Militant, she's Britannia, rousing the troops every year on the last night of the proms. Sometimes she appears bare-breasted. (coughs) <coughs> hair flowing on the front of the Art Nouveau building she has no false modesty she is always entirely herself the rat pie man loves the maiden fierce or spiky for example as Queen Elizabeth I who wields a big stick on the side of St Dunstan in the west the celestial EHO much prefers her as a helpless nymph or Edith Cavell, noble and self-sacrificial in the Charing Cross Road Because she is the eternal feminine, the maiden also appears as mother and crone. The celestial EHO is reassured by a certain sort of mother, bosomy, dumpy Queen Anne outside St Paul's, Mrs Thatcher, strict but fair, and of course Queen Victoria, mother of an empire. The rat pie man is more likely to be turned on by Bodicea, bare-breasted and beastly, driving a knife-wheeled chariot into the heart of Westminster. And the crone, they don't make statues of crones, but you often meet her in human form. She's that muttering bag lady shunting a shopping trolley along the Walworth Road, and the Rat Pie Man and the Celestial EHO give her due reverence and respect. The fight continues. The Rat Pie Man laughs and swirls his enormous bottled green cloak, mottled with a thousand years of sinister London stains and patches like the rottenest of Thames wharfs. The celestial EHO is sharpening his sword on the spinning millennium wheel. Close to the stars, above Old Bailey, the maiden watches as battle commences. They duel along the embankment, leaping from the tops of lorries to the roof of Fishmonger's Hall. The rat Pie man swings like a bat from Hungerford footbridge. The celestial EHO hacks at the steel hawsers, badly notching his sword. Scholars have noted that their fights seem to gravitate towards circular venues. In the past, they had often battled in the Roman Forum, now 20 feet beneath the city. In the 17th century, they span around the monument, slashing and cackling at one another, ignored by Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke, who sat in the basement carrying out scientific experiments using the monument as a giant telescope. They've chased each other round the dome of St Paul's a thousand times, disturbing sleepy pigeons and amusing the contemplative moon. All those hairs, breadth, scapes and desperate slips, the last-minute clutchings of leaded gutters, the grabbing at angels' wings. They like the globe, too, the new globe, the old globe. Shakespeare once nearly wrote a play about them. Tonight, it's the BFI IMAX that hosts their struggle. The film is frozen into immobility. The late night audience falls into a trance, flattened into their seats by the force of a mighty gyration as the IMAX whirls round like the drum of an intergalactic spin dryer. Ha ha, gotcha! cries the pyre man falling unexpectedly onto his opponent from the full height of the building with a speedy upward thrust the Celestial EHO stabs him through the heart it is the equivalent of charging the Ratpire man under the 1947 Environmental Protection Act subsection 12.2a which is what the Celestial EHO would really like to do but does not because he hates being laughed at <laughs> The rat pie man laughs anyway as he leaps to his feet unscathed. That is how it is for immortals. Wearily they resume the fight, which does not differ greatly from all the other fights. At last relief arrives. A stillness falls, the spinning stops, the maiden appears, descending from the top of the auditorium and passing floatily along the aisles, her bare and beautiful lily-white feet not quite touching the ground. Silently she gestures the opponents apart, nods thoughtfully at the celestial EHOs, boasts, smiles gently at the rat pie man's witticisms, frowns away their aggression. As they leave she reverses time with a wave. The audience awakes, reaches for popcorn, focuses on the screen. A drink. If they ever go out for a drink together, which they hardly ever do, only about once every 20 years, this is what they order. The maiden has champagne, she likes the way it tickles her nose. The rat pie man goes for a meaty red, a Chilean Malbec often hits the spot. The celestial EHO longs to ask for a glass of milk, but he can't because he'd be laughed at, so has to sip his way through something tough and manly. Like half a lager and (laughs) lime. He can't bear being teased. It's so unfair! They just treat him like he's their kid brother or something. The end. Who knows when it will end? Probably when London ends. When the seas rise and the waters take us, and the tip of the shard becomes a temporary lighthouse for lost.
0: Thank you, Tony. Our second story for the evening will be The Job by Maggie Van read by Silas Hawks. Maggie has a nursing and welfare background and lives on the sunny coast of New South Wales. She began writing short fiction in 2007 and became smitten. She regularly cycles, eats cake, writes stories, and drinks red wine, all on the same day. Her work has been published in seven countries. Silas is continuing the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for the Register, and more clips can be found on his website.
3: Silas. The Job, by Maggie Venice. I arrive home one afternoon to find my 80-year-old father using a spatula to scrape the green velveteen paper off one of the walls in the lounge. I can hardly believe my eyes. He's just spent the entire winter grieving for Mum, barely eating or speaking, cocooned inside bedding with a come to smell like a tired old creek. I'm not sure if my presence has registered, I kick off my tan espadrilles and watch. Fascinated as he works the spatula in tiny, measured strokes. Mum had fought him for 50 odd years to keep this god awful wallpaper. The exertion has him puffing, his flaccid tongue is dangling over his lip like a thirsty old dog's. How's it going, Dad? I ask. Yeah, not bad. It might take a while to finish the job, though. Oh, you know, son, no woman's ever going to move in here with you while well, this rubbish is sucking the blooming walls. Do <laughs> you reckon? I'm not sure I'm, I'm looking for someone else just yet, but I'll definitely keep that in mind. Hey, what'd you say I'd grab us a nice cold beer? Ah, oh, I thought you'd never ask. We're needing the ute uh, tomorrow, Arvo, too moon's about right to catch a fish. Not today's paper, I need to check the tides. First thing next morning, I pull back the blinds and spot Dad on his haunches in the driveway, cranky fingers preparing his uh, tackle. I pull on some jocks and wander out to join him, my winter white skin prickling under the early rays. I'm curious to see that he's chosen a slower action rod about two metres, an eight kilo line and a stiffer, heavier reel. What he's taught me over the years, he's chasing some pretty big fish. Yeah, it's definitely lost condition. Looks like he's shrunk by several centimetres. Yet here he is after months, holed up in bed, suddenly back wearing his signature floppy-rimmed grey fishing hat and blue-checked flannel shirt. Though the past six months have never happened. While I'm torn about uh, whether I should be trying to discourage him, the minute he asks, I throw in some clothes and ride the old Kawasaki to the local fish and tackle store to grab him a bag of live worms. By the time I get back, Dad's got all his gear loaded into the back of the ute and he's recovering in one of the faded canvas deck chairs on the veranda. Once again, struck by how frail he looks. It's been a while since we fished together, Dad. What about some uh, company down the beach later on? Nope. Huh. Well, uh, how about you just let me drive you and I'll give you... Don't need babysitting. Yeah, maybe a man a few words, but when he crosses his arms and shuts his eyes, I know better than to insist. I've come to realise that it's the tiny things, the, the slow tap of his index finger, the hint of a nod, the knowing look that follows you way after you've left the room. That make him who he is, inconspicuous, yet formidable. It's mid-afternoon when Dad hoists himself into the driver's seat, his eyes barely clearing the steering wheel. I take no refuge in the knowledge that, uh, while he hasn't bothered packing any food, (coughs) He has grabbed a bottle of black labelled Johnny Walker that he's been hanging on to for the last year or two. I sidle up to the open passenger side window just as he turns the key. So, what's for the whiskey? Now, the wind will blow up later. Warm the elbows. Uh, uh, don't be worrying about me, you hear? I watch him set off down the road, and after the ute disappears, I head straight inside and call Frank, my younger brother. Frank lives an hour up the coast, and his second wife, Penny, live in a renovated bungalow. After sharing my concerns, Frank says that uh, when a uh, retired fisherman suddenly hankers to go fishing again, it's a positive sign. Tells me I'm overreacting. After we decide that Team Dad will assemble for a barbecue at the Foreshores this Sunday at noon, we hang up. Meantime, of course, it's newly divorced me. He'll continue to keep a close eye on him. <laughs> Who needs a social life, Right? Couple of hours later, I'm standing at the open kitchen window, imagining Dad's spindly legs straining to hold them upright against a freshening easterly wind. I ponder his abrupt recuperation, find myself combing back over today's conversations. Nothing about the previous 24 hours is sitting right with me. Not his sudden recovery, not his uncharacteristic refusal of a fishing buddy, and definitely not his companion bottle of whiskey. The more I think about it, the more I begin to believe that I'd caught a hint of bluff in his voice. (laughs) Outside, the easterly carries the squawk of seagulls, and I watch as it lifts the sheet of tin, covering the old compost bin. While the inconsistencies collect in my gut like metal filings to a magnet, a strong gust sends Dad's fishing hat tumbling across the driveway, and a cold sweat sweeps across my body. With Dad's hat stuffed down inside my T-shirt, I kick-start the Kawasaki and head toward the beach. Knowing he has always prepared, always preferred to fish from the rocks, my best <coughs> guess is that he's chosen a spot along his favourite kilometre of coast. It's not long before I come across the U. I'll park the bike nearby and start walking. There are two huge, rocky, basalt outcrops to the south and we fish together many times from both. There's no sign of him after 20 minutes and twilight beginning to fade on the horizon I pick up the pace. By the time I get to the second lot of rocks my guts are churning. It's dad's tackle box I see first. When he doesn't answer my calls my mind spins out and away like line running off a fishing reel. I strain my eyes and keep searching. By this time stumbling over rocks in the fading light. When I find the half-empty bottle of whiskey, my throat tightens. I drop straight down like a crab, feeling my way in a fast, semi-crawl towards the, the first cluster of small rock pools. It's here I spot my father lying face down in about a foot of water, and the cold slaps me like an open freezer door. I haul him out, sit down, cradled in a soggy bag of bones. In my arms, my father feels as small as a ten-year-old. He stares up at me, his eyes wide and glazed, his mouth emptying of seawater, like one of his precious catch. Suddenly, I'm howling into the salt-laced wind. Eventually, I retrieve Dad's hat from inside my T-shirt, pull it down onto his head and carry him back. It's two hours before I've finished with the cops and when I eventually arrive home, I can't seem to stop shivering. I I know it's high time, I told my brother, but this isn't the kind of news you deliver by phone. Numb. I prop myself up beneath a steaming hot shower. Twenty minutes later, I'm heading up the highway in the ute. I arrive at Frank and Penny's just after eleven. The second they see me standing on the doorstep, struggling to speak, they know Dad's gone. I close my watery eyes and let the words play out like I'm talking my way through the What of a silent movie. Back home, in the early hours, I find myself standing in the center of the lounge room, swigging straight from the dusty bottle of Mum's Exxon's cake sherry. My guts are on fire. But but it's a good fire. And as the room begins to tilt, I I feel time turned back. Hours, days, years. I sense my father's presence within this house. Minimal, yet powerful. A life preserved in echoes. And I raise the bottle. And I smile and I say aloud, Here's to you, Dad! The man who believed ugly wallpaper was bad for your love life. (laughs) After I've been glued to the floor for God knows how long, it turns out it's the ideal time to pick up the spatula, lift it, and finish the job.
0: Thank you, Silas. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be Birth Plans, by Ushigakura. We read by Beverly Longhurst. Well, She was born in East London and lives there. Her story, Pink Lemonade, was published in Bristol Short Story Prize anthology in 2013. The clinic is forthcoming in issue 12 of Structo. Other work is online at Litro, and she's also a guest blogger for Mislexia. Beverly trained at Weber Douglas. She has worked in a range of theatre, including All My Son, Remembrance of Things Past, and Morning Becomes Electra, Way Upstream, Shadow Language, and she's also worked in TV, including BBC Sketch Show, Little Miss Jocelyn, and Film. She's a narrator for the RNID.
4: Birth Plan, by Ushi Gafford. Birth Partner, husband only, no one else to be admitted until post ward. Midwives, would prefer female midwives and medical staff. Positions for labor, would prefer active labor, if possible, to enable me to work with gravity. Monitoring. Where monitoring is necessary, we would like explanations as to why it is being done. Pain relief. Gas and air. Epidural if necessary. But still so that my legs are mobile. Would like epidural to start to wear off before the second stage so that I can still push the baby out myself. Episiotomy. Would like to avoid if at all possible placenta happy to have the injection to speed delivery and prevent bleeding vitamin K happy for baby to have this injection visitors I wish no one except invited guests and medical staff no non-essential staff sales reps or other visitors please particularly not my (laughs) mother-in-law Actually, the same goes to my father-in-law and my mother. <laughs> we'll see them when we're ready. If they ring up to ask which ward I'm on, please tell them nothing. If they want to make the trip down to London, that's up to them. We don't plan on having any visitors at home for the first week at least. If I have to have a caesarean, then my husband will fetch more clothes to me at home he will have done the laundry while I am in hospital. He will also have stocked up in groceries, including baby's toiletries, in the event that the baby is premature and we have not had time to get in, these in. He will also, ideally long before the birth, have assembled the new chest of drawers in the baby's, uh, for the baby's things. He will go out and buy a car seat so that we can bring the baby home from the hospital he will have mopped the floors. He will have painted the hallway, including the woodwork, so that we are not ashamed to open the door. (coughs) It's fine saying that the rooms we live in are important things, but the postman, neighbors, and other people who come to the door only see the disgusting hallway and gain false impression of the flat. If the baby needs medical attention, then my husband is to remain with the baby at all times. Similarly, if I need a general anesthetic for any reason, then my husband should take the baby and stay with it. I would like to breastfeed, so if I am still unconscious after the baby is born, then the baby should be placed on my breast to encourage it to suffer. Please monitor my blood pressure hourly, as there is a history of problems in the family. In the event of my death, My sister has all my bank account, pension, and life assurance details. Did I mention that I particularly do not wish to see sales reps after the birth? Oh, please keep my wedding dress for my baby when she is older. In the event of my death, that is. The shoes, and the veil, and the tiara as well. There are casseroles and a lasagna in the freezer. (laughs) And flapjacks. I have not tried freezing these before, but I am assured they will be fine. Some of my eggs, as in over, have been frozen too, so there is the potential for a sibling for my child. I sanction this. The life assurance payout could be a deposit on a house. I believe there would also be some death benefits due from my employer. You could check this. I am happy with an open casket and awake as per family tradition, but please check my family's wishes. On no account is my mother-in-law to choose hymns or readings at my funeral, nor read at it. I have still not forgiven her for the wedding. (laughs) If you need someone to make a decision and cannot get any sense out of my husband, please try my sister. I would like the baby to take my husband's family name. I am happy for it to be baptised. If the baby is baptised, my sister is to be a godparent. I think I would like it to have a name from our list, but see what it looks like when it's born. (laughs) The baby is to be placed on its back to sleep. My husband will need some help to look after it. I'm happy for family members to contribute, but would prefer the involvement to some extent of a trained professional. (laughs) The sling, cotton wool balls, and other bits and pieces are in the large IKEA bag at the back of the wardrobe. I will lead to my husband a decision as to whether to use reusable or disposable nappies. Oh, please keep my grandmother's locket, my rings, and other heirlooms for the baby. My sister can tell you which. My friends Marie and Katie can have some of my other pieces of jewelry if they would like them. My sister might like my grandmother's pink bowls. I don't know what you will do with my clothes and shoes. I hope you don't throw them all away. The gold cross belongs to my brother. Give it back to her. She gave it to me, and I love it, but I never wear it. I need a haircut. Perhaps my usual hairdresser could do it. If he's squeamish, work from a picture. (laughs) Don't bury me in my maternity clothes. Please try to keep the laundry under control, also the kitchen. If you do nothing else, please keep the kitchen, the bathroom, and the toilet clean. (laughs) Be vigilant about mopping floors, especially when the baby starts to crawl. Don't leave her with the neighbors, however nice they seem. My mother can come over if you're stuck. Or I would prefer that you took her to stay with our parents, even. But they are not to take her to that evangelical church. And give our parents clear instructions, e.g., about sleeping on the back as things have changed. Never allow the baby to eat melon or butternut squash (coughs) at your parents' house. I have seen what they do to it. (laughs) If you need to prepare food while there, refrain from using the tea towels. This might be a time to educate your father on the subject of hand hygiene (coughs) and lavatory hygiene for that (laughs) matter. Do not allow your mother to dress our daughter. <laughs> if she buys clothes for her, ever, and you must discourage this, please ensure that they are not in that hideous shade of terracotta that does nothing for anybody. You might well tell your mother that she herself could take ten years off if she would only wear normal coloured neutrals and stop shopping at her una. I never did find a nice way to say it. Keep the bathroom cupboard closed at all times because of the asbestos. Don't keep anything in this cupboard. Treat it as if it were sealed up. In fact, having it sealed up might not be a bad idea. Consult my uncle on this. There is a DVD of instructions with the pram telling you how to assemble and collapse it. You know I would prefer it if you kept washing the towels at 95 degrees. If you use disposable reusable nappies, buy a sanitizing product from the supermarket to pre-soak them. You could also use this in the washing machine to be doubly safe. Ruth is probably right when she says we need net curtains and blinds for safety. Don't drink alone with the baby in the house. One beer is okay. Don't let anyone smoke in the house, of course. Um, Before our child begins to talk, please try to break the habit of using the reflexive pronoun (laughs) willy-nilly. While we're on the subject, it is excuse me, not skews, please. Scusi would be just about acceptable where you're Italian, but you're not. (laughs) The Christmas card list is at the bottom of the drawer, along with miscellaneous cards for emergencies. It's just family, distant family, and old friends we don't see much. I don't tend to send to our normal friends in our circle because we see them anyway. There's no need to keep sending to my old friends once I'm gone, of course, but you could use this as a list for the basis of people, for writing to people, to let them know of my death and the baby's birth. Remember, the non-Christians too, they're not on the list. Should Gabriella, my former tutor, attempt to write an obituary in one of those other lives slots? you are to repudiate it immediately. <laughs> she has form for this kind of thing and is as coming as a fox. Do get the leak in the system sorted out sooner rather than later. We don't know what's doing to the electricals and I'm sure it's responsible for that damp wood smell. If you can get the floors painted, that would be wonderful, but make sure you get the baby out of the house while you do it and until the paint is fully dried. When you bathe her, the water needs to be body temperature or slightly cooler. You could buy a thermometer if it's easier. You know I don't believe in an afterlife. I just believe that the world goes on after me. So I don't believe I'll be watching you, but I want you to be happy. Take her to see the flowers in the park and in the market. People will always ask you about me especially as the baby grows up, and you collect her from nursery or from school. The baby will ask me about me too, once she realizes. I wonder how long it takes a child to be conscious of a missing parent. The two of you will have a wonderful relationship. You'll have to get my mother or Katie to help you with things like clothes. If anything happens, baby. You must love it just as much. I don't believe in an afterlife, but I believe that we will all be asleep one day. We won't be conscious of being together, but we will be. Sunday morning, I can see the two of you walking along Columbia Road past the hospice to the flower market. You're wearing a pink coat with flowers on the pockets. Storeholders pick you up to get a better look. I wonder who you'll be. What you'll look like, sound like, smell like. I wonder if you'll have my hair. What you'll do to the world. Will you do this one day, too? Will a dark line spread along your belly? Will you live to tell the tale? You're a big, fleshy egg. i the spoons, carrying you carefully to the end of the race. Not trying to win, just finish. Don't break, don't break.
1: We saw him again for the first time, about three months after the accident. I was at the far end of the bar when he entered watching my pale cheeks and pigtails cohere in the chrome of the espresso maker as I buffed it raw. I heard the door open way up front, shooing in a burst of traffic noise, and I wouldn't have bothered to turn had not Lewis, standing there in anticipation of the day's first customer, failed to deliver the jaunty, rather servile greeting he'd invented for us all to use, which had long since evolved into communal reflex. When I looked up, the door had closed again on Soho's waking grumbles, and there he stood, the memory man. Tall enough to look down on Lewis's bald patch, his gallows frame draped in a salty grey trench coat. He nodded to Lewis, as if it were the first time they'd met, and made his way alone to the usual booth. Morning, managed Lewis, belatedly and off script his eyes swivelling to meet mine. We stared at each other in shared confusion until Lewis tilted an urgent eyebrow in the direction of the memory man, who had hung up his coat and was busy folding his endless limbs beneath the table. I snatched my pad, smoothing my skirt with the backs of my hands and wondering how in God's name I should greet him. Could I bring myself to mention what had happened? After all, he would have no idea that we knew anything about it and I might be guilty of a cataclysmic intrusion. On the other hand, would a discreet but warm condolence be exactly what he needed, expected even? Why, oh why, hadn't we discussed it all beforehand? Why? suppose, deep down, none of us had ever expected to see him back. I'd settled on a gentle but meaning-laden, it's lovely to see you again, when I noticed the memory man muttering to himself, the great extruded bow of his back thrust out across the table. A reclining Betty Grable in the factory print behind him bathed her heels in the copious black hair that coiled from his brow towards a Rushmore-esque nose. When he noticed my presence, he leant back with a smile, shot a sheepish glance at the opposite seat and placed his order. As I walked away, I heard him muttering again. I showed Lewis the pad. Look what he asked for. Lewis scrutinised, bit his lip and shrugged. Customer's wishes are command, right? Especially the loyal ones. When the omelette and fries came through from the kitchen, I took them over, along with two coffees, an orange juice and a lemon and poppy seed muffin. Once again, the muttering stopped. But when I lifted the muffin from the tray, his fighter's hands indicated the spot not where he himself was sitting, but opposite. Without being asked, I placed a cup of coffee there too. We tried as hard as we could not to stare. With a kind of terror, I allowed myself the occasional crimson-faced peek at the progress of his meal, mostly by watching its reflection in the surface of the chimbali. When he finished, he nodded his thanks and left leaving one coffee drained and the omelette devoured. The muffin lay untouched, and since it couldn't go back in the counter cabinet, I ate it myself. He was back on Friday. Tuesday and Friday had been their days, and I saw now that he spent as much time in silence as he did muttering, and that during those periods, his eyes, large and doleful like the rest of him, stayed fixed on the opposite seat. He'd chewed sagely on a forkful, giving the occasional nod and low laugh. The following week he was back and the week after, same two days, same murmured facsimile of a conversation, same order and same uneaten muffin, just no girl. She had of course been beautiful, subtle features and chestnut hair tied back, clothed in smooth pastel shades like something from a Nordic catalogue. She and the memory man, although we didn't call him that at first, had started meeting at Old Compton's Diner a year or so earlier, theirs being one of the first orders I took. Even back then they were hard not to look at, his drooping potency and earnest (coughs) communion with her serene, intelligent gaze. Sexy enough to be writers, we thought, or chess prodigies, or some near-extinct greed of revolutionary philosopher. It was Lewis who first saw the posters, springing up in the West End, promoting a brand new actor to trendy fringe venue. You will not believe what he does for a living, he grinned, brandishing the flyer, and there was no mistake in the face. The Christian name was Alexis, the surname something none of us tried to pronounce, for fear of sounding stupid. And he was, said the poster, a memory artist. We had conflicting ideas of what this might mean. For me, he was a sexed-up heir to Mr Memory from the Hitchcock film, a man who'd absorbed and could instantly recall every speck of human knowledge, his brain a handy repository for stolen formulae. Honey tests him on the distance between random Canadian cities. Winnipeg was one, I can't remember the other. None of us went to see his act. Whether we were party to a love in its infancy or to a longer affair approaching some breathless zenith was hard to say. But it was clearly love, on an upward curve, played out twice weekly in spelled-up binding, near-identical instalments. If the diner wasn't busy, I or one of the others could sometimes be found with a blissed out smile, elbows on the bar, staring off into space, or even directly at the pair while Lewis eyed us nervously. As a rule, he would be waiting when she arrived, although she was always first to leave with a kiss and a tapering touch of outstretched fingers. After a while, he too would pick up the bill and go, turning left outside the door. It was soon after his departure, one Friday, that Kimberly came stumbling back from some errand or other in floods of tears. She'd seen the accident, on her way through Golden Square. Or rather, heard the crash and seen Mrs Memory, as we by then referred to her, in mid-flight towards a shop front. (coughs) Days later, once she calmed down, Kim described how the woman had seemed to lie still on the air for a moment, like an illusionist's assistant, and how she couldn't remember hearing anything as the glass caved in. We stood there that morning listening to distant sirens, and I too began to cry. It felt as if we'd lost a sister rather than a customer. And all the time we were wondering, did he know? The prospect of his ignorance seemed even more painful than her death, and Lewis hurried off, white-faced, to Golden Square to inform the police and paramedics they must track down Alexis something-or-other, the memory man. Old Constance was a miserable place after that. Though only one was dead, we fully expected them both to be gone from our lives. Soon after the memory man started showing up again, I realised he'd done so exactly a year after they'd first appeared together. A year to the day. There was no way of checking for sure, but I knew. Waiting on him again, I also realised his mutterings were not mere mutterings, but one half of a conversation. An imaginary one, I thought at first, filled with uncanny reactions and gaps where her answers would have been. Within days, though, it became obvious that none of it was invented, but instead remembered. I knew because I remembered some of it, too, and was amazed at how much of their conversation I, hovering in attendance, had heard and retained, storing it all away to the point where occasionally, just occasionally, I could have filled those gaps in for her. Even from a distance, I might sometimes observe a sequence of gestures and asides I'd seen before, not approximated, but replicated, cloned in their subtle entirety, unmistakable. There was never any sugaring or wistful distortion. What trifling disagreements they'd had were faithfully played out, keenly felt, but always swiftly healed. He wasn't doing this, I quickly realized, in order to change any of it, but simply because he could. After he'd left, I would sink my teeth furtively into her untouched muffin, trying to taste it exactly as she would have tasted it, swilling coffee with the crumbs to make each mouthful last. Next to him, of course, I was an amateur. For him, every fragment of every second they'd spent together was a living, breathing thing Preserved like reels of film and stacked in the infinite chambers of his mind to be replayed at will. Where I could, I helped. There was one date I remembered exactly. November the 3rd. Back then, Lewis had taken to playing live sport on a small TV above the bar. In a bid to create the right ambiance. Although most people objected to the razzmatazz so early in the morning. The day, that day, it had been Baseball. An exhibition match in Japan between the touring Yankees and Hanshin Tigers. And when Hideo Matsui had cracked a home run against his fellow countrymen, the memory man had whooped aloud, causing the guilt to snort into her coffee. I spent hours, days tracking down a recording of the game, pressing plate at exactly the right moment when the date came around again. Again, he whooped. Again, he turned and guffawed at where she would now be wiping up coffee spatters with her napkin. He didn't look at me, but on clearing up, I found he'd left a 20 pound tip. As the cycle neared its end again, the final Friday loomed, large and horrible. Whilst maintaining my attentiveness to him as best I could, I worried that some, something would show through my manner and I ate to say something. The memory man, for his part, seemed unaffected and in this I knew he had no choice. Each day, He drooped his shoulders low over his steaming coffee, like a priest at a temple flame. And at night I would dream of him, still there in the empty diner, consuming meal after meal with no one to clear away the remains, cups and crockery piling up around him like mounds of scoured cockles. Only on that final Friday did he vary from the script. The weather wasn't quite as it had been a year before the same blinding blue as Dallas, 1963, and New York, nine eleven, But it was close enough. Back then, they'd been happy right to the end. And yet now, I looked on, helpless as both meals sat untouched. And there was agony in his eyes, not laughter. I watched as he threw aside his lines and said things for the first time, the kinds of things we might all wish we'd said to a loved one before they were snatched from us. He couldn't, of course, reveal to her what lay in store a block away. And so, at the appointed time, his giant hands reached across and closed round phantom wrists. His eyes followed her up from the seat and across the floor, lingering for a second at the door to acknowledge her final wave. A last smile, and then he sat alone. Fifteen minutes later, the memory man laid a banknote on the table and got up. He stopped at the till where I was standing beside Lewis, my tears at a rolling boil. And he told us thank you, that he'd never forget our kindness. And then he left us, this time for good.
0: Thank you, Suzanne. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. There is another birthday to celebrate. Liar Supremo Katie and their husband Alex have had a little boy called Theo. (laughs) He was born just after last month's slings and arrows. This now is how the Liars measure time. And the passage of themes,
5: <laughs> talking
0: of which, we will once again rise like a phoenix on the 10th of June, with Weird and Wonderful, here, at the Phoenix. Submissions are closed, but you might like to try your hand at July's Sons and Daughters. Details of this, and all of the year's remaining themes, along with videos and recordings from previous events, are on the lies website, and so our final <coughs> story this evening will be elevator pitch by Mike Clark, and we read by Sarah Fevers. Mike Clark recently completed a creative writing MA, and is currently putting the final touches to his first novel. His day job, it has quotes around it, currently involves working in the margins of the criminal justice system. A source of unparalleled inspiration for a crime writer. A shame, then, that he isn't one. <laughs> Sarah Fevers, trained at East 15. Theatre work includes All You Ever Needed, A Hard Day's Month, 26, Mole Flanders, The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky, and More Than Words. And TV includes The Real King Harry. Sarah!
6: Elevator Pitch by Mike Clark. Prologue, 2084. The Americans have wasted all the shale gas. President Cash allows mercenary conglomerate fraculite, to drill in geologically dodgy regions, like close to the Yellowstone Caldera. You know, this enormous, fermenting mass of pressured lava that's been overdue to, to erupt for a million years. The experts. Okay, I get it. You got the end of the world wrapped up before the opening credits. But give me the human interest. And what did you say your name was? Isabel. I say coolly, drawing breath momentarily and pressing the lift's down button. O M G! Jenny Cassidy, exec producer, Oscar-nominated best picture Greatcock, has not only let me start my pitch, but she's asked my name. Not even in a bloody elevator yet. So, Isabel, shoot, Jenny says. She's slim, suited, and obviously looks after herself. I'd normally have offered to carry her massive Gucci bag when her car pulled up outside the citadel, but she tossed it over her shoulder like it was a little canvas tote. The apocalyptic eruption blots out the sun for 18 months, all long enough for civilization to die out anyway. Then the heroine surfaces. She's commander of a nuclear sub. (laughs) A lift opens, and me and Jenny step inside. Despite my furious pressing of the door's close button, some bearded jerk jumps in with an iPhone wedged against his ear. I vaguely recognise him as the marketing guy who cheated on one of the other interns with some burlesque trapeze artist. Jenny looks interested in the sack of script he's almost dropped over the lift carpet. I'll be damned if this twat interrupts my big chance. For six months, I've made tea here at Citadel Film Finance just for opportunities like this. Over the flow of Earl Grey, I've questioned whether this is the best use of her first in English from Bray's Nose, ushering visitors, invariably dull bankers, to our subterranean office suite. This nuclear subcommander, is she hot? Does she have big tits? <laughs> Jenny asks. I'm uncharacteristically speechless. I must be giving Jenny a look that says, Didn't I read in this week's Guardian that you're one of media's top ten pin-up feminists? <laughs> it's the movie business, Isabel Shorthand for genre, Jenny says. She smiles like it's some ironic counter-subversive test. Like, are we casting Scarlett Johansson or Rooney Mara in this baby? Shit! She's talking about casting already! <laughs> <laughs> this is my chance. The sub's English, I add patriotically. And I'm also thinking with Jane stride off for the part. She's sassy, kick-ass, a pro. But yeah, she's hot for an older, uh, slightly more experienced woman. I try to avoid eye contact with Jenny and immediately regret it. And her tits are, uh, medium? (laughs) Jenny narrows her eyes at my lack of precision. Like mine, I say desperately. I then panic over whether to push out my chest or punch my shoulders to illustrate the point. I opt for the former on account of appearing appropriately assertive. I immediately regret this when I remember I'm wearing a sheer mad Men blouse and the guy with the script drops his mobile phone from his ear and stares straight at me. Or more precisely, my medium tits. <laughs> it's a strange sensation when you're hoping the ground will swallow you and you're already plunging towards the third floor basement. Gotta be Kate Winslet, Jenny decides. The lift shutters. Jerks under our feet like it's come to an unscheduled stop. The soft down light has cut out, and this fluorescent strip flickers on. And I see lines under Jenny's foundation. It's deadly quiet. I've taken this lift a thousand times, and I can't remember if it normally plays music. Now nothing's coming from the speakers. We all exchange glances of suppressed anxiety. But in one way, I can't believe my luck. Without this power failure, or whatever it is, Jenny would be stepping out onto level minus three. As it is, I can complete my pitch. She rips open this envelope marked secret, only open if the human race has been annihilated. (laughs) And it tells her to set course this remote island on the Indian Ocean that's been kitted out as a kind of ark. So she surfaces there with a crew of 90 guys and 10 women and they find its Cold War equipment and rations to help them re-establish civilization. But there's only enough for half of them. And the twist is that a couple of weeks later, this Russian sub turns up. They've hacked the secret code! Russian commander, Javier Bardon, Jenny suggests. (laughs) (laughs) It's taking much longer than I expect for power to be restored, and I wonder about hitting the alarm button. But Jenny's still composed, obviously captivated by my pitch. So I continue. To be fair to the future of the human race, it's decided all guys will fight to the death to decide who will stay on the island. And finally, there's a the challenge between the two commanders. I can feel that sexual tension. Will Cade Winston and Javier Bardem finally fight or fuck, Jenny says. <laughs> Right, I say. <laughs> she beats his bloody brains out. Cool. I like their Hunger Games vibe and that phallic submarine bursting with testosterone. But the first act needs eye candy for the team demographic. Maybe the commander has a crush on this geeky midshipman coldbreaker? Jesse Eisenberg? Says the scripts guy, still staring at me. I turn my back on the earwigging asshole. This is my moment! I could deal with Jesse's side to fix my cell phone, Jenny says. There's one thing worse than being stuck in an elevator, and that's being stuck in an elevator with no 3G signal. My signal's normally good until the lobby in minus three, but I'm dead as well. If it's a major power cut, the base station might be down too, says the guy. It's cool. I need to practice flappy birds anyway. Jenny smiles at him, and I swear looks him up and down. He twiddles with his irritating beard. Not bad looking for a media type, but she must have 20 years on him. I'm desperate to close my pitch, and I'm damned if i will be derailed by some dick posing like he's in a Calvin Klein boxers advert. I maintain momentum, although the 30-second spiel i practise practiced in front of the mirror is long used up. Frantically trying to remember the plot of the remainder of my screenplay, which would be easier had I actually completed the thing, I decide to press as many buttons as I dare. What motivates her in the showdown with the Russian commander is the remote possibility of a reunion with her disabled daughter, who's in the custody of her ex because of her drink problem. A weary eye roll.
5: And drugs! Shed
6: loads of ketamine and crystal meth. and this alcoholic Kate Winslet is skippering a nuclear submarine asks the hipster suppose it stops her nipping to Tesco's for a bottle of gin (laughs) I hate him (laughs) I feel like I've blown my chance so I hit the alarm button nothing happens I press it again and again Isabel, I love your pitch says Jenny I take my finger off the alarm and smirk at the guy. He smirks back, shamelessly. It's getting hot in here. A bead of sweat trickles from inside my collar and across my breastbone. Then hesitates and pulls while my necklaces are stuck against my skin. He's watched its progress every drip of the way. But the beginning. The world-ending, cataclysmic Yellowstone eruption. It worries me a little, Jenny says. You mean natural disaster porn's per se? Asks the guy. I really fucking hate him now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my alternative beginning, I say. This massive solar flare erupts like one of the Goffins where will fry all the satellites but a million times bigger like Satan's burning cock. <laughs> Opening shot. Oh. Simple. Some can-kicking African kids in the desert see the sun get brighter and brighter. Cut to Shenzhen! A huge motherfucker of an electromagnetic pulse turns everything electrical, computers, cars, power grids, to burnt toast. And before you've had a chance to decide you'd never want to butter it for breakfast, FLASH! The Earth's surface gets the thousand-degree hairdryer treatment And that's how all human life gets wiped out. Except for in submarines. (laughs) Tote cinematic. And what's more, my ex-boyfriend works for a film in Soho, who could knock the whole shebang up for less than half a mil. Cool, Jenny says, peeling off her jacket. The back of her blouse is as transparent and sweat-soaked as mine feels. I'm guessing the reason it's so stifling is the air conditioning's out all over the building. This light will tripped on using the emergency batteries. The guy says. Then, would anyone object if I took off my shirt? It's Alexander McQueen, and I don't want it marinated in brine for my meeting once we get out. No, go right ahead. Jenny says. Watch out. I might be forced to do the same we're her much longer. She hits the alarm button too. How long have we been stuck? Enough for about a hundred thirty-second elevator pictures for sure, I say. We're all silent. The guy is leaning against the wall, looking cool in both senses of the word, stripped to the waist in his jeans. I feel a jealous compulsion to do the same when I see Jenny's in my reflection in the mirror to immaculately dressed professional women, propped up and perspiring, and wondering how long we'll maintain our composure. I replay my pitch mentally and silently over and over again. Then Jenny asks, Your solar flare scenario, is it, you know, researched and scientifically credible? Could all the electricity grids and computers be instantly knocked out? Except those in submarines and underground lift shafts in old government buildings, the guy says. I think he meant it as a joke. But no one's laughing. No one speaks for another few minutes. Jenny's tapping furiously into her iPhone. Are you still running on zero? She asks the guy, who I swear is taking a selfie. (laughs) Not a question my girlfriends ask me, he replies. (laughs) It must be half an hour now, and I'm creeping myself out. In the bowels of this basement, we've heard nothing to suggest that civilization is coming to help us. If indeed it's still out there! I'll email you my treatment, I say to Jenny, pulse pounding in my ears. She's slumped on the floor, jacketless, heels kicked off. My turn to pitch, says the guy. A guy's trapped in a lift with two hot women. There's a chance, distant but plausible, that outside there's been some disaster. And the question is, if they all think the worst. Where's the harm if they follow their base instincts? Whatever the eventual outcome, what should the guy do? He glances at Jenny, but he rests his hands on my waist. Shut the fuck up and wait for help, I say, pressing the alarm continuously. I'll climb into the lift shop right like down your fucking crag. James Bond gets rewarded appropriately for his bravery. He smirks. Jenny slips on her stilettos. Stands and starts to unbutton her blouse. She beckons the guy over to the doors against which she flattens herself and stretches out a sleek, muscular leg. He looms over her, unfastening his belt. Jenny gives me a numbing smile, but I look away. I do not want to be part of this, even if it is the end of the world. (laughs) There's an almighty yell, and the lift shakes as the guy slams onto the deck. I see Jenny's knee raised high. I grab a couple of the bastard stick-bound scripts, whack him round the head twice, and he's out cold. Whether it's coincidence, or that the action's restored some broken connections, the lights flicker on, tinny music starts up, the door's open with a ping, and Jenny presses her business card into my hand. (laughs) That was an old holds barred audition, Isabel, says Jenny. Stepping over the guy, but we'll offer that role to Jennifer Lawrence.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the end. But you are warmly invited to stay for the Happily Ever After party at least until they kick out. For now though, please join me in the traditional farewell salute and give it up for all of tonight's wonderful actors and authors. Good night.